Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I'm over here reporting live from a very celebratory Giannis Inc. board members meeting. You will not believe it, Andrew. We're actually shaking hands with each other. We've got $100 bills. We're just passing back and forth around the room because Giannis set a 60 minutes record with 21 million viewers for his feature (laughs) last night, Sunday night. I don't know if you saw it, but look, everyone who already listens to our podcast knows the Giannis story. I thought CBS 60 Minutes did a phenomenal job breaking down not only his rise to fame, but also the impacts in the Milwaukee community. You know, it, it gave me goosebumps to see him get that level of exposure. And it was just so heartening, Andrew, to see the worldwide reaction to Giannis's story for him to set a record on a hallowed television uh, show like 60 Minutes with 21 million viewers. It just gave me hope and faith in humanity. It was beautiful. Yeah. Do you think we have to welcome Steve Croft onto the Giannis Inc. board of directors now? Yeah, he muscled in. Okay, he's he's trying to make a <laughs> a, a big time play like before any mergers or late, acquisitions. We'll, yeah. we'll accept it. We'll let him. We'll let him do it. Um, yeah. No, I I will say I wasn't particularly interested in the Stormy Daniels thing, but I talked to my parents Who's that? last night. Uh, well, so I talked to them and they call they call they're like, "Are you watching sixty minutes?" I was like. I'm not, but you better stick around and watch the segment on Giannis. It's a great primer. You'll love it. And it was great. It, it, I, I watched it after the fact this morning, uh, but they did a really nice job. No, it reminded me of like the selection show or anything else when you're trying to kind of tease your real story. I mean, you throw out whatever you can to kind of keep people interested to make sure they're watching. And there's some sort of an actress. I don't know if there's a politician, something involved. I, don't, I didn't really pay attention to lawyers. It was complicated. But they saved the meat of the program for the end, which I totally understand from a TV programming standpoint. Very smart of them to kind of bury the lead and make sure they had maximum viewership for Giannis's segment. All in all, home run uh, by them, and it was it was very cool to see. Some of the Giannis quotes were great, too, about his determination, how focused he is on being great. They had an awesome picture of him when he was flying over for the NBA draft. He's wearing a LeBron shirt. I mean, think about that. Now he's chasing LeBron, you know, five, six years later. Just a lot of details in that story. If you were thinking, oh, it's just a puff beast, it's going to be on you know broadcast television, I'm not going to bother. Giannis heads go out and find that video and don't worry about whatever was being broadcast for the first 40 minutes it was just an app as you call it you know (laughs) an appetizer before the main course absolutely um hopefully you guys all watched it at b-dubs but listen should we get into it because we did have some pretty big news over the weekend we sure did and uh hopefully warriors fans who were trying to call Kevin Durant their stepmom, uh, are you know rethinking that stance a little bit here because Steph Curry is going to be out for at least three weeks. It sounds like uh, the rest of the regular season's out of the question. Steve Kerr is saying you know potentially he's going to be out uh, for the first round of the playoffs as well with uh, an MCL sprain in his knee. Um, that is a tricky injury to kind of diagnose. How long is it going to be? It kind of puts them into flux a little bit. But the bottom line is, Warriors fans, if you were trying to take Kevin Durant for granted, if you were saying that he was uh, you know, edging in on Steph Shine or however else you wanted to put it, you better welcome your stepmom to Thanksgiving with open arms and a big <laughs> hug because you're going to need this guy a lot in the first round of the playoffs and then throughout the rest of this you know, championship push, depending on when Steph Curry is able to get right. 
Yeah, well, we have a lot of different angles to talk about with this. I have to say, I was surprised it wasn't a bigger deal, uh, just like among mainstream sports news. Obviously, like there was a lot going on with the NCAA tournament this weekend. Uh, but I mean, to me, as soon as I saw him get like not carried off, but but hobble off uh, against the Hawks Friday night, it was like. Ca- kind of like the rest of news stopped for me and I uh, Saturday afternoon I was checking Twitter like every half hour looking for a Steph MRI update which I guess I mean Steph watch is kind of where we're gonna be until he comes back and even after he comes back um and it because like the entire playoffs hang in the balance here right there's no question about it that it is the most sort of monumental development here uh, in, in terms of the championship landscape that we've seen this season. And I think it's a huge deal. I'm actually glad you said that because it should have been a bigger deal. And I think the natural tendency in this situation is to say, well, look, Kevin Durant ha- uh, had a knee sprain last year. By the time he came back, Golden State went 16-1 and through the playoffs, and he was holding the finals MVP trophy, and no one even remembered practically that he got injured. It's a false right. comparison to this year. There's no question about it because, number one, Steph Curry's injury is happening significantly later in the season than Kevin Durant's did. Number two, as we've discussed, their offense is built around Steph Curry. When he's not on the court, it looks a lot different. It functions a lot different. It was easier for Golden State to have confidence that they could win without Durant last year than it was for them to have you know confidence this year they can win without Curry. Three, Curry's had multiple injuries this season, so you have to figure the likelihood of re-injury or of him not being able to get back to 100% during the postseason is higher than it was for Durant last year because he enjoyed excellent health prior to his knee sprain uh, last season. And then also, you know, I don't even know if I'm up to number four or five yet here on the list of points, but (laughs) the Rockets are a tougher team than any team Golden State had to face last year, in my opinion. They're more balanced. Yeah. They're deep, deeper. They've been playing at a higher level point differential-wise, and they present a real issue if you want to keep up in a shootout with them, and that's how they play. If you don't have Curry at 100% to do that, it's much, much more difficult for these Warriors to do it. And look, if Golden State was the number one ranked defense this season, I would be inclined to believe those who are saying, look, they can just kind of scrap by, plug in Quinn Cook. It's going to be fine. They're going to be able to win with defense. As you've mentioned previously, Draymond hasn't been on the same level, and this team has been coasting at times uh, throughout this season. So just to expect them to ramp up and have the league's best defense you know, going into the postseason into a first-round matchup, I think is expecting too much. And I also think their first round matchup here will be much trickier than it was last season or the year before, because those teams who are battling for the eighth seed are on pace to win like 46, 47 games. And a lot of those teams are actually better than their record because of injury issues. You could put Utah, San Antonio, um, you know, even Minnesota into that equation, right? Um, All of those teams are significantly better than your usual seven seed. So to get through them will be trickier. And then I think from there, it's only going to be a, a tougher gauntlet than it has been in previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, it, that's what we'll, that's where we should start. Let's say that. So we I, I put together some questions, but we also got a question from Viger in Amsterdam who says, with Steph Curry out for the first round and possibly some of the second round, which middle pack teams in the West can give the Quinn Cook Warriors the most problems? I would start with Utah, who beat them this weekend. Granted, Durant wasn't playing, but like, 
Utah has been playing really, really well and and is a team that has traditionally given the Warriors some problems, albeit not as much in last year's playoffs. They were definitely part of the 16-1 run. Uh, but, I mean, I wouldn't want to play that team. if I were Even if I were a healthy Warriors team, they'd be kind of a pain in the ass. And to me, the Jazz will present some real problems. Well, look, if you're playing your way, if you're the Warriors, you feel fine about the Utah matchup because you feel like you can dictate pace, tempo, you know, you can outscore them if you need to. That's with Steph Curry healthy. If you don't have Steph Curry and you're trying to reorganize or, you know, like pull yourself together as this like defensive minded, gritty, chop it up type team. Now you're playing the way that uh, Utah wants to play. Now you're letting Gobert stay on the court at all times and not being able to expose him. I mean, one of the lasting images from last year's postseason was Steph Curry literally ring around the rosy on Gobert. You remember that play, right? Where Gobert's like, yes. <laughs> I mean, he probably did yeah. like, what, four straight circles? I mean, he was, you know, no offense to Kyrie Irving, but he was like orbiting the sun as he was doing that, right? I mean, it was, <laughs> that's what it seemed like. Uh, but, now you have to play the Jazz's style. So what What does that look like? Well, they're going to be comfortable. They're not going to be nearly as afraid of Golden State. It's going to be a dogfight. And you could say the same thing about the Spurs. You know, the Spurs play, uh, you know, defense on the same level, uh, efficiency-wise, basically, as Utah does. And they're going to be way more comfortable playing uh, big and playing ugly with Golden State if that's how that series goes. So I think you're absolutely dead on. The, the first-round matchups here, stylistically, are going to present a different type of challenge for Golden State than they would have expected. You know what else is a little bit of an issue that I would be worried about, and we don't we don't mean to concern troll too hard on the Warriors here, but no, I like, I do, Andrew. Like you said it right, it's a big deal, and people need to be snapping out of the oh, uh, you know, Golden State. They've been here before. They're gonna they're gonna be fine. They have the most talent. Golden State works because of Steph. And if you don't think this is a big deal, you're actually disrespecting what Steph has done over the last four years. And I think you were right to say that right off the top. That is uh, headline, underlined, exclamation point. Uh, this is a big deal. Look, we were making up fake debates for months. And I kept saying, look, like, why are we having to do this, Andrew? Why do we have to prop <laughs> up the Rockets? It's not a fake debate. You know, Golden State's offense falls off a cliff when Steph Curry's not on the court. Well, that is going to be a huge problem. And not only that, I would add that for most of the season, the injuries that the Warriors have been dealing with have been pretty low stakes. Like, they've been resting guys longer than they need to. And that's one of the reasons I wasn't that worried about the Rockets challenging them is because, like, while Chris Paul is playing on, like, bulky hamstrings and James Harden is playing 38 minutes a night and playing almost every game, like, the Warriors were being very, very smart about all of their all of the rest and you know, extended absences and whatnot. And I thought that there was a good chance that we were going to get to the conference finals and Chris Paul would be playing at like 85%, whereas Golden State's roster would be completely healthy and just run them out of the gym. Doesn't look like that's going to happen. And part of why I'm worried is because like the last time this happened with Steph, he wasn't totally the same guy even when he came back in the in the 2016 playoffs. So it, like... Yeah, I'm I'm 100%. I'm I'm just as concerned as you are. Um and the other thing that I was going to mention is that Clay Thompson isn't totally the same guy when Steph isn't out there and obviously you can say that about most of the Warriors offense, but Clay specifically didn't play as well when when Curry missed time earlier this year. Um and so it's going to be really interesting. I guess 
that would be that would be my next question is do you think this makes the season more interesting or more frustrating because part of me feels like now we're gonna have to sit through another two months of Steph Curry injury updates and even when he comes back there's gonna be like non-stop focus on whether he's really healthy and like I didn't I didn't enjoy that in 2016 and I'm not looking forward to it now but it does sort of put a like it injects a little bit more intrigue into a playoff run that to me at least was a foregone conclusion look Andrew you know I'm in favor of greatness and I'm against rooting for injuries so you probably know where I'm going to come down on this one right like it's not (laughs) good for the sport in general to have a star of his magnitude out it does make it more uh, competitive there's no question and let me just have one piece of, of data here to inject into this. The Warriors' point differential without Stephen Curry this year is plus 2.7. That's right in the same ballpark as Minnesota, Portland. It's worse than Utah's, worse than Oklahoma City's, and worse than San Antonio's, right? So they're going to have to play better in the playoffs than they've done in the regular season uh, You know, when they don't have Steph Curry if they want to win a first-round playoff series. And they're still going to have to get up for that second-round series and potentially the conference finals. So... I think it's fair to sort of categorize it at this point for Golden State as a gauntlet. They're a wounded team about to go through a gauntlet. And I never would have said that prior to Steph's injury. (laughs) You know, I would have said they're going to coast. You know, the uh, sweeps in the first and second round are possible because that's what their ceiling is. But but their ceiling has really caved in. I think, you know, ultimately for me, it's a bummer uh, because it will wind up defining this postseason. There's no question about it. If the Warriors win... Steph's return as the savior will almost guarantee to be the story, right? If the Warriors Mm -hmm. lose, it's going to hang over teams that win. Um, Whether you want to call it an asterisk or something else, it's going to be mentioned because he's on that level of a player where he's regarded as a top three type talent. And if he's not out there and say Cleveland wins uh, or Houston wins, those teams are going to have to deal with that, you know, nagging knock in the future of, oh yeah, you only won because Steph was hurt. And that's not fair to them. I don't like that kind of asterisking uh, to teams at all, but it's going to be a fact. People would say that if that's what winds up happening and that's a bummer. And so for that reason, you know, to me, the frustration sort of outweighs any of the anticipation of more competitive series. Yeah, I mean, I guess the ideal scenario at this point is Steph comes back for the beginning of the second round, is lights out in the second round and looks completely healthy, and then we get full-strength Warriors against the full-strength Rockets, and they go six or seven games in the Western Conference Finals. Although, like, again, full-strength Warriors, I think it would be closer to a gentleman's sweep against Houston, but hopefully we get there at least. That's all I can say. Yeah, and remember, the ideal scenario that you're laying out is sort of what happened two years ago, right? I mean, he came back and looked amazing against Portland in the second round. They handled Portland, uh, you know, no problem. They advanced the finals, no problem. And then the Draymond thing turns the entire final series. Golden State winds up losing. And people point to two issues, right? They say, well, Kiki Vandeweghe gave LeBron the assist of his career, right? uh, You know, detractors of LeBron would say that, number one that Draymond never should have been suspended. But number two, people still bring up Steph's health, even though the Warriors went out of their way for six weeks during that playoffs to say Steph's fine, Steph's fine, Steph's fine. It still gets mentioned around that title as a nitpick. I'm just saying because uh, of the magnitude of this injury happening again and because Steph has missed so much time prior to this injury this season, uh, the likelihood that his health winds up sticking to whichever team is the champion this year is even greater than it was two years ago. 
Yeah, uh, and it was really interesting in that 2016 playoff run because you would hear conflicting reports. I mean, even at the finals against the Cavs in Cleveland, like I would hear different things from different people who were there. And like some people would be like, no, I talked to the Warriors yesterday. Steph is completely fine. And then uh, like I'd be sitting next to another Warriors reporter who would say, I heard last night, like, Steph is not, not 100%. Like, it's it's clear to everyone involved. And he would have games where he would go off, and you'd be like, oh, Steph is fine. And then he would look pretty limited at other moments in that series. And so it was hard to really decode what was really happening. Um, I think, like, history has sort of agreed that he wasn't 100%, but he was, like, maybe at 80%. And that's sometimes the way it goes in the playoffs. But you talked about Steph defining these playoffs i'm also wondering like how close are we to putting steph in the anthony davis and bede category where his health defines how we think of him as a player because one of the things i struggle with with anthony davis and Embiid is like i love 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 watching those guys but i also in the back of my mind i'm constantly worried about whether they're going to be healthy long term and it's sort of makes them more difficult to enjoy and uh and i don't want to put steph in that category but like this is a guy one of the main reasons the warriors were even possible was the injuries he suffered earlier in his career allowed allowed them to sign him on a discount and like allowed them to build out the rest of that team and i mean he it, like most people around the league expected him to be injured for a, the better part of his career. And then he sort of miraculously got healthy. But I think there are some real red flags here that, that kind of worry me as a, a like died in the wool Steph Stan. Well, look, I think in his defense and to calm your nerves, I've got a stat for you prior to this season in the previous five regular seasons. So like the entirety of his prime, do you know what percentage of games Steph Curry appeared in? Uh, just, just take a guess. Because um, he's been he's been dealing with this injury ravaged knock, you know, because of the ankles really early in his career. Over the last right. five seasons, he had appeared in ninety six percent of Golden State's regular season games. That's okay. a phenomenal that makes you feel number. Better. That is a yeah. phenomenal number. Now, granted, this year he's dealt with a lot of repeat injuries, which gets you worried because if they were all completely unrelated. Uh, the ankles and so forth, you know, it'd be easier to kind of say, hey, look, his track record says he's a healthy guy. The reoccurrence of the ankle stuff definitely uh, makes me nervous. But uh, I guess another point of comparison I would use is not only has he enjoyed excellent health, uh, except for some really poorly timed injuries with the knee sprains in 2016 and this year, I mean, just awful timing. Uh, but right. he is also the type of player whose game should age very well. To me, if a guy like Steve Nash, who's basically playing like he almost needed a new back, you know, like <laughs> he needed a back transplant for like the last five years of his career, and he was still playing at a pretty high level. If he can play deep into his 30s, I don't see any reason why Steph can't. But I also think that this injury is a reminder that like the peak Steph Curry is gone forever in my eyes i'm not saying he's declining but is he ever going to have an individual season as good as his unanimous mvp campaign which is you know admittedly a pretty unfair standard given how great he was during that year i don't think so yeah i'm not saying he's falling well, off a cliff i think he could be an mvp caliber player for the next three four seasons if he stays healthy 
But to get back to that level and the emotional side of what a lot of Steph Curry fans are looking for, it's probably fair to not expect that of Steph to say, look, we don't need you to be that 2016 guy anymore, Uh, you know, and recalibrate expectations down just a touch. I think that's healthier for everybody. Yeah. And, and part of that comes down to what's asked of him with Durant there too. Um, which is another reminder that it was lame that Kevin Durant went to the Warriors, but we don't have to get into that. The last well, I, question. I, I, but, and but for, my, my point on that, though, record. Andrew, though, hold on, though. My point on that is even if it was Harrison Barnes still and not Kevin Durant, you don't need to have 73 win Steph Curry to be a title contender, to be a champion, to have him in the MVP conversation, right? So yeah. uh, he's always going to be kind of uh, a victim of his own uh, expectations, of his own greatness. Like that season and how incredible he was shooting that year and where he was shooting from and how much excitement it was is always going to hang over everything the Golden State does going forward it's part of the reason why the Warriors fans look at KD as the stepmom right because they're not (laughs) able to have that 2016 Steph Curry that's not fair to KD but importantly to me it's also not fair to Steph and if he comes back and enjoys you know 90% health for the next three seasons and he's constantly an all-NBA first team guard and they're always in the mix for title competition and they're winning 65 games that's a hall of fame first ballot you know one of the greatest careers of all time and you, he's settling for that, you know, and, and that's why he's so special because his peak was so yeah. high and because he's in position to still have a phenomenal career going forward despite these injury issues. Yeah, and for the record, I am pretty excited to watch Kevin Durant try to lead them through at least to the second round and then we'll see what happens. But I think this will be kind of a fascinating experiment as far as his role in Golden State um, because we've never really seen him try to carry them in games that matter. And uh, I can't wait to see what it looks like. The last two questions, though. uh, Are the Warriors still title favorites for you? And does Steph make All-NBA this year? Um he, I think he's going to make All-NBA probably the third team. That's that's most likely where I would put him. It's going to be really tight, though, because there's seven quality candidates for six spots. I think the one advantage he's got is Kyrie was probably not on the same level as Steph in terms of deserving, and now he's going to mm-hmm. miss 20 games as well. So I could easily see that last All-NBA spot kind of coming down uh, to those two guys because everybody else has pretty much enjoyed good health. In terms of the Warriors being the favorites, prior to the injury, I would have taken the Warriors over the field. Now I will take the field over the Warriors. And I don't know if there's one specific Whoa. team. I don't think there's one specific team that I would say I like better than Golden State at this point. But I think that their margin for error has increased uh, you know, a lot. And I also, you know, frankly, I feel a little bit bad for Kevin Durant because you know, the pressure's coming for him in a big time way. And he's trying to get it done. Not only have we not seen him sort of lead the Warriors without Steph before, We've never really seen him operate on a you know championship level without an all-star point guard. He's always had one. Westbrook was in Oklahoma City. Say what you will about their relationship. Westbrook's a very, very good player. Westbrook and Steph Curry are in one class. Quinn Cook is in a different class. That, <laughs> and, the you know, Quinn setting, Cook Warriors. Yeah, and I think it's setting up Kevin Durant potentially uh, for a lot of criticism if they're not able to uh, you know play at a high level. And so... I'm sure he's going to welcome that pressure. He's a competitor. He's an excellent player. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he is square in the bullseye right now in terms of you know who is going to be facing backlash if Golden State doesn't get it done. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I was saying. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how he handles it. Uh, I am shocked 
that you are already ready to pick against the Warriors the rest of the way here. Why, Andrew? That, Look, why, why are you underrating yet. Steph? Look, you're sitting over here and telling me that Steph Curry, all season long, you've told me Steph Curry's better than Kevin Durant. You've told me that for two years. What if yeah. Steph Curry's not out there on the court? How, <laughs> If you're taking away a player of that magnitude, if we took LeBron away from the Cavaliers, you don't think they're going to get back to the finals. If we took uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard off the Spurs, look what happened to them. You know, they were, He was an sure. MVP. Look, you look, take, look, you, look, 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 hold, hold on. on. You take James Harden off the Rockets, are you still picking them to, win, uh, to make it to the conference finals? You're not. So let's be real and respect Steph Curry's greatness. But you do realize that Steph isn't out for the year, right? Well, look, I, you think he's going to be back to 100% uh, in time to really impact the playoffs? I'm not I'm not taking that as an assumption or as a guarantee at all. Actually, I like the way Steve Kerr played this by basically ruling him out for uh, the whole first round of the playoffs because that reduces the pressure on Steph to get right. You know, it extends his timeline yeah. a little bit so people aren't clamoring for him game one of the postseason. But part of the issue that, that's got me nervous is Steph hasn't strung together a super long stretch of games here healthy all season long. So just because he's back on the court doesn't mean he's going to be 100% the rest of the way. And there's good teams out there, and there's teams at every round who are going to push them in ways they just didn't get pushed last year. Uh, that this is a tough challenge. And I'm not I'm not trying to make like some straw man argument here of like, oh, like the the immortal warriors, are like, you know, they're they're gonna have to overcome such adversity. Look, we have to respect not only Steph's impact on how well they play. Uh, yeah. You have to respect the fact that he could get re-injured, and you have to respect the competition at every stage of the Western Conference is going to be tough this year, and it just is. And uh, put all those things together, I think you can make a pretty compelling case that Houston, Cleveland, Toronto uh, are potentially in position to capitalize on those successes. Wow, Look, I mean, Toronto, your t- your pro Raptors stance is is going further than I ever could have imagined. You heard it here first, people. The Warriors are not winning the title from Bed Golliver. That's not what I said. I said that I would take the field <laughs> I'm over that. I'm with you. I'm just All that means is 51%. But look, uh, where are you? I mean, you you think they're just going to waltz? Steph's going to come back. He's going to save the day. I mean, you think it's just as easy as that? I'm still going to take the Warriors. I'm a little bit annoyed that we have to do this dance where we worry about Steph's health and monitor it. But uh, in week one of Steph Watch, I am still too scared to pick against the Warriors um so we'll see where it goes because we we honestly we don't have all the information right now in terms of like how bad it really is like I'm not a doctor ready to break down like the differences between grade one grade two and grade three MCL sprains but uh but I don't know it's it's definitely a massive story so um, well this is actually an interesting test in the power of Steph Curry allegiance because the Steph Curry respecters, like myself, the guys who think he's great, uh, would say, look, we have to calculate how Golden State can do in the postseason based on his absence. But the Steph Curry worshipers, and that would be you, are going to assume <laughs> that he's going to come back and save the day so no one needs to panic. It's it's all going to work out because Steph will lead you to the promised land. So I respect your stance, but uh, I, I don't think it's going to be that easy. Yeah, and for me, it's also a function of how good Golden State is elsewhere and i'm part of me has a feeling that they have been kind of coasting across the board for the last four or five months and so we're not even we don't even have an actual an accurate picture of what they can be without steph like we haven't really seen draymond locked in we haven't really seen kd locked in like so we'll see i don't know 
Um, but let's move on. We talked about this too too long. Uh, let's move on to the defensive player of the year race. Grant says lately people have been pushing the narrative that Ru- Rudy Gobert's defense is more impactful than James Harden or Steph Curry's offense. There are certain numbers that actually support that argument, and I do think it's an interesting idea to think about. That being said, on Friday night, Rudy Gobert defended LaMarcus Aldridge and managed to hold him to a career high of 45 points in an overtime loss for, for the Jazz. How can you be the defensive player of the year if you let someone score their career high against you as the primary defender? What do you think? What do you think? I think Andrew, come on, Grant, smarten up, <laughs> smarten up, Grant. Look, I'm gonna distill this down because I keep repeating myself, and I don't know if the message is getting clear, Andrew. Do you and I, or do smart observers, judge players on their best day or their worst day? Are we supposed to do that, Andrew? Yes or no? Well, after the last two years, I've learned not to. Thank you very much, and I want to. Let's make an extended analogy here for Grant because he's clearly interested in numbers. He took the time to email us. I think he's going to be, you know, an above average guy. But Grant, you don't need to fall into this mistake, okay? Here, I'm going to put it in personal terms for you. Grant, you're a listener to our show, so I assume that means, you know, you're probably a smart guy. Let's let's take you back to college. Let's say you got an A in your writing class, all right? Now, however, there was a time during that semester where you drank too much liquor. Look, it happens. You were up until 3 a.m. You were bombed. You woke up the next morning completely hungover. You were useless. Your girlfriend texts you and she says, uh, hey, Grant, are we still on for dinner tonight? You say, sorry, babe. Uh, I can't do it. I'm feeling sick. All right. Then your mom texts and say, hey, don't forget. It's your grandma's birthday. Did you send her a present? You say, oh, my God, uh, I'm on it, mom. Don't worry. You don't even ever bother to get back to it. You're just too hungry. You can't do anything. You're hungry. You can't cook yourself a meal. You're that useless because you're just that hungover. You order yourself pizza. The pizza is delivered to you. You stumble to the door. You do not tip the pizza delivery guy because you don't have enough money. You are not preparing for this situation. You pay for your pizza. You stiff the (laughs) delivery guy. You go back to your bed. You eat the pizza. At that point, you put on Beavis and Butthead. You were supposed to work on that English writing assignment, and you're pretty good in the class, but you just did not have the energy or the focus. You start watching Beavis and Butthead for the next six hours. At that point, you realize, oh, no, I've pretty much wasted the entire day. What am I going to do going forward? Uh, The best cure for a hangover is to drink more. So you decide to drink more. You repeat the cycle. Grant, that is a very (laughs) realistic scenario that I bet you were in. And when you look at that 24-hour day, if I was looking at your behavior during that 24-hour day, I would say you're a terrible boyfriend. You completely let your girlfriend down. You're a terrible son. You're a terrible family member. You're cheap. You didn't even give the pizza delivery guy any money. You're a waste of space. You're a waste of time. You're not a focused student. You deserve an F based on that day. And so therefore, your entire English I'm so grade, lost right now. <laughs> all of your performance during that entire English uh, class goes out the window because on that day, you are completely useless. You get an F. Sorry, Grant. That's, that's how it's going to be. That is the standard that you're holding Rudy Gobert to if you're saying he can't win defensive player of the year because he had one bad game. That's why we don't isolate individual matchups and try to judge someone's entire worth based on what might have been their worst day. Nobody wants to be held to that standard, Andrew. Is that fair? Should we be saying Grant's a terrible student, a terrible boyfriend, and a terrible son just because he got drunk one time and and partied a little bit too hard? No, we shouldn't. That's not fair. (laughs) You know what? 
I blacked out like halfway through your little hypothetical scenario there. I don't know exactly what was happening. I heard Beavis and Butthead and pizza and hangovers. Um, I I'm with you. We don't need to we don't need to judge Rudy Gobert on one game against the Marcus Aldridge. I think you might be being a little bit too hard on Grant here. Uh, but no, Grant yeah. is being too hard on Rudy. That's my point. And <laughs> okay, I would never, right, fair enough. I would, I would never judge Grant that way. And I'm saying, look, let's look at Grant's whole body of evidence. Yes. He, he had a party. He went too hard. It happens. But the rest of the semester, he got his business done. He, he turned in his papers. He read the books. He contributed in class. He raised his hand. The teacher called on him. He, he took care of his business. That's essentially what Rudy Gobert has done for the rest of the season. And look, there's good arguments you can make against Rudy Gobert's Defensive Player of the Year candidacy, starting with yeah. another one of my favorites. The greatest ability oh, is availability. <laughs> and Rudy Gobert has missed a lot of time. If you want to strike him out of the conversation because of that, I would be fine with that argument i just don't like this idea of hey, hey, hey one loss to san antonio at late march all right you're done throwing your candidacy in the trash it's just disrespectful to a guy who has had the biggest defensive impact of any player in the nba when he's been on the court this season i love it we are getting peak golliver today everyone <laughs> and I, I part of me just wants to clear out and let you go solo for the next 45 minutes um I think there are a couple things to respond to here. First of all, Rudy Gobert's defense is more impactful than James Harden or Steph Curry's offense. You and I have argued about this in the past, but it is insane to to think that defense is as valuable as offense. And uh, I'm sorry to anyone who's pushing that agenda because Rudy Gobert's defense is crazy valuable. It's just not the same as Harden or Curry's offense. Um, and I think it ultimately like undermines the argument that were that were it undermines our appreciation for Rudy Gobert if we're asking everyone to appreciate him that much um the second thing it's very funny that availability is the best ability could actually work in Joel Embiid's favor this year we got to talk about the Sixers later in the podcast but I think the the defensive player of the year race is is shaping up to be pretty interesting because there's no obvious winner. I think I would probably lean toward Embiid right now, but I do think it's kind of bullshit to wipe out Gobert's candidacy because of the 52 games or 55 games or whatever it is he'll end up playing by the end of the year because he has been so dominant on that end that I think like he deserves consideration. I just think that Embiid has been nearly as dominant for a team that is just as good and he's played more games so I like it's tricky it's really tricky I mean there's no right cutoff point for games played on these races right like ideally you would I would say 65 you know and I think that would make me feel very comfortable voting for a guy if he's under that does that make it impossible uh no it doesn't but the further he's under the harder it gets that's the same situation well, that you know Steph Curry's facing in the All NBA conversation right now as well, and it's tricky for guys who are that insanely good. Uh, and do you hold an injury against him? I mean, it does not seem fair if he's taking care of business. If all of what he's doing on the court, in the case of Gobert, is translating directly to team success, and it is. You know, if they weren't and that's, winning that's games, that's my thing. I would I would have an easier time discounting Gobert if he missed thirty games and the Jazz were in eleventh place because of it, but. He's been so good in the games that he's played that he's like allowed 
Utah to salvage this season and not just salvage it, but they've like legitimately been excelling over the over the last two months and will finish somewhere in the middle of the West as a result. And obviously Donovan Mitchell deserves credit too, but like Gobert, like he's been so good while he's there that it's it hasn't been an issue that he missed 30 games. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately for this case about his defense to have more impact than an elite player's offense to really gain traction, he's going to have to win big uh, on the highest stage in the playoffs for that argument to really gain validity. And then I also think that the game is going to need to get less tilted towards offense like it is right now. And, you know, offensive efficiency has been through the roof. All the best teams, you know, have insanely good offenses, essentially, whether it's, you know, Golden State, Cleveland, uh, you know, Houston, Toronto, all amazing offenses. And if, if that's the way the game is being played, uh, it is harder to make that case. If this was 2006 or seven, you know, Gobert would probably be more towards that, like, you know, Tim Duncan's the MVP type argument uh, because of his impact. You know what I mean? But uh, he's coming along at a tricky time, which honestly, it, it makes his impact on winning and losing that much more impressive to me. But I think it's still going to hold some voters back uh, just because they're going to say, well, look, I mean, cute story, Utah, uh, but you're not, you know, truly elite. So, you know, we're not going to reward your players. And that would be a shame. I think Gobert has definitely done enough to make, even with the injuries, to make a top three ballot uh, for the defensive player of the year. But in terms of where he falls in my ranking, one, two, three, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. Okay. Well, speaking of the highest stages of the league and the playoffs michael says with coffee shop Kyrie's injury putting him out until likely the second round of the playoffs i could see my celtics getting upset in the first round along with smart tice and of course hayward injuries this team has always struck me as gunning for 2018 and 2019 anyways so my question is twofold would unleashing a Jalen and 12-time tatum attack make the most sense for the Celtics? And also, is there any measurable real value to playoff experience for young guys like that? What do you think? Well, first of all, I like the Celtics fans saying they, you know, completely running away from their team. That's always, you know, music to my ears. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, what did I say? Fake fake contenders, right? I said that, what, nine months ago? Was I right? I, to be fair, the Kyrie injury really changed oh, the equation injuries. on them. Uh. Okay. I mean, well, <laughs> did you expect on. him to have perfectly good health? He's never had perfectly good health his entire career. Didn't we say injuries uh, and lack of depth behind their superstars was going to be a critical factor for them That's this true. year? Look, we're not I've we're not saying anything about, about the future since 2015, and I, it would freak me out if I were a Celtics fan. Well, I think Michael's on the right uh, idea here. You know, your team is not that good, Michael. Uh, you were probably caught up in the excitement from the you know earlier part of the season totally understandable but you're correct move the goalpost to next year because your future is super bright try to submarine expectations completely try to play that underdog card that's worked so well for you these last couple years during the postseason get back into that gritty brad stevens army uh, category and then hope in terms of uh what and no i don't think that they have much of a ceiling beyond that in terms of what he said about uh the value of experience I don't know if this is quantifying it, but like ask yourself how many guys who have become champions ever did it their first go around, right? Like one of the reasons why it was so insane for Kawhi Leonard to win finals MVP and, and to play for that Spurs team was that, mm-hmm. you know, it, like, well, first of all, he had gone through a lot of pain the previous year at a very, very young age, uh, missing those yeah. free throws and sort of being the goat of that series. But 
to achieve that much level so early in his career, it kind of like opened the mind like, wow, what's possible for this guy? He's going to be a reigning star for years to come because it just so rarely happens. All the biggest players, uh, whether it's Jordan, uh, LeBron, you know, right down the list had playoff struggles before they had success. So there's not very many counterexamples. You can look at Steph, Clay, Draymond, those guys paid their dues in the playoffs, you know, losing to the Clippers before ultimately getting over the hump. So I think playoff experience, even if it's just in a a one round series is very valuable. You can even cite examples like, you know, for guys like Brown and Tatum, you know, go back and look at those, uh, those early Thunder teams, right? You know, they get into the playoffs the first time at a very young age, they lose to the Lakers who ultimately go on uh, to win the title that year. Uh, That's valuable reps. They come back the following season, Western Conference finalists. So to me, uh, there's, you know, I I just view it as indisputable. I don't necessarily need to quantify it because the right. number of examples where guys have benefited from it is so large and the number of examples of guys who just didn't even need it is so small. Yeah, I mean, to answer his question, is there any measurable value? Probably not. Um, and I think there are also counterexamples where you look at last year's Bucks and like the they haven't really built on what they accomplished against the Raptors and and granted that like they sort of tailed off at the end of that series. So it wasn't really that groundbreaking anyways for them, but you could also look at the wizards the last four or five years where like, I think there are limits to what you're going to be getting from the playoffs, but it's also like the one place where you can sort of solidify your place in the league. And if you're Boston it's not just about solidifying Jalen Brown and Tatum's place in the league, but I also think like if those guys go out and show out in a playoff series, then their trade value becomes a lot more real, and uh, and I think that's part of that's part of it too. Is like for younger stars, if you're trying to attract other talent, it's it's pretty important. Like it'll be important for the Sixers or who we are about to get to. Uh, to sort of like prove yourselves in the playoffs. And um, as far as, and, and that's part of like the team building aspect of all this is like, you can really like send a message to the rest of the league that it's real. And the, beyond that, it sort of depends kind of like on a case by case basis, but you're right that basically everybody has to fail and learn like what it really takes in the playoffs and in a playoff series before they can, can grow from there. But it doesn't always happen. Like, I don't oh, for know sure. no. how much Harden has really grown from some of his playoff failures through the years. I think he will show the the positive impacts uh, just in terms of a comfort factor. I mean, he was even more comfortable in last year's first round series against Oklahoma City. I mean, I think, you know, matchups can always, you know, throw you off. And San Antonio definitely threw him off. There's no question. But you would way rather have him have those reps uh, on his yeah. resume than not have them. And I guess to sharpen and kind of clarify what I was saying, you know, Getting playoff experience is no guarantee you're going to win a title. But if you're ultimately going to win a title, you need to have that playoff experience. And that's sort of the quantifiable evidence that he's looking for. Is like, go back and look at the last 30 years of teams that have won titles. All of their main guys had playoff experience before they won. To me, that's pretty, you know, tried and true, take it to the bank. Uh, You know, there's lots of teams that are going to not win titles. But a team like Boston, a franchise like Boston, their goal is championships, right? I mean, that's what they're trying to get out there and do. That's why they've you know stockpiled all these picks for so long. These young guys have the making of a potential future champion. There's no question about it. 
The only yeah. way they're ever going to get there is by making the playoffs. And so that is very valuable this year. It should not be viewed as sort of a lost season. Um, I would say that those guys getting reps, even if they get bounced in the first round and we all kind of laugh about it and mock them, given how high expectations were earlier this season, <laughs> there is still absolutely value to that. And, you know, kind of coming from me, you know, you know, I'm not just giving them generic praise. I mean, that would be a real thing. Well, and to be clear, I won't be mocking them if they lose without Kyrie. And that's the worst part of the Kyrie injury is I was really looking forward to mocking the the Celtics with Kyrie. But now they're sort of like, an easy excuse for them to go to when they fail this spring. So when Wall comes back and goes nuts against the Kyrie-less Celtics in the first (laughs) round, and you guys sweep the Celtics, or even gentlemen sweep, five-game win, right? You're not going to have a party? Come on, man. You're going to be... You're going to be making fun of Olenek. You're going to call it the Kelly Redemption. I mean, you're going to have something in your pocket in terms of perhaps, excitement. Perhaps, perhaps. And, yeah. and if I come on here and try to say, look, that series win has an asterisk. They didn't have Kyrie. You would push back hard on that. Come on, be honest. I certainly can't promise that I'll be dignified in, in that scenario. So you're right. Um, but yeah, I would I would only add that there's there's parallel value to the team in in terms of playoff experience because the team then finds out what what they really have and I think the Celtics have have done that already with with Jalen Brown and, and twelve time Tatum this year but it'll be even more so in the playoffs they'll find out whether those guys are like legit building blocks or uh, they need more help so. Um, moving on though, to another Eastern conference powerhouse, it feels like we're in the middle of a Sixers moment right now, uh, where like the rest of the league is beginning to realize that like, oh, holy shit, these guys are good. So we have two questions related to the Sixers. Matt says, as of Sunday, since Christmas, the Raptors are 31 and 11 with a plus 7.8 net rating. While the 76ers are 28 and 12 with a plus 7.6 net rating. The Sixers won the only head to head matchup over that time. Am I crazy to say this Sixers team could give the Raptors all they can handle? Next question. Ty asks With the 76ers set to make the playoffs for the first time post Hinky, can Brett Brown be considered a good coach, or is he just benefiting from an improving young roster? I like to think Brett is good, considering the resilience he showed over the tanking years, but how do you measure a coach like Brett? So I think the Brett Brown conversation is, is going to be really interesting because he's going to be under the microscope to a degree that he hasn't really been over the last four or five years. Um and, you know, there are times when that team just like runs out of ideas on offense. And I think you can pin some of it on Ben Simmons. But I also think that like, if that happens in a couple playoff games, there's going to be a lot of questions about Brett Brown and whether he's the right guy to sort of take them to that, that next level um, of the rebuild. And I personally love Brett Brown. He's probably one of the most entertaining coaches to talk to. Um but I'm not sure. I, I I have no idea what to expect from the Sixers. So what do you think right now of, of this team and what's possible? Well, first of all, I mentioned the Thunder uh, earlier, that 2010 Thunder team getting their reps against the Lakers and then coming back to the Western Conference Finals the next year in 2011. Like The Sixers, to me, are so intriguing because they could either be the 2010 Thunder where they get into the playoffs, they play a really good team, say Cleveland maybe, or whoever they would face in the first round, 
They, yeah. they give them all they can handle. They're just too young and they lose. Or they could be that 2011 Thunder team where their talent, you know, their top level talent, guys like Embiid and Simmons, just shock the world and they make a deep run that no one really saw coming and they really beat some quality teams uh, and get to the conference finals. I think that honestly, I could talk myself into either one of those scenarios being possible for the Sixers this year, in part because. You know, their ages, especially Embiid, I mean, Embiid's already older than those Thunderstars were uh, when they made that Western Conference Finals trip. It's weird to think that because, you know, he had missed so t- uh, so much time due to injury, but he's a few like redshirted seasons behind those guys on sort of the career arc path. So right. uh, I think I don't have a firm stance in terms of where I, how far I think Philadelphia's going to go. I will say they're the team that I'm most intrigued about seeing play in the first round I think they can scare anybody I could see some of their bugaboos you know turnovers and experience uh you know choppy stuff late in games I could see that coming back to bite them a little bit but I think the Brett Brown conversation also kind of mirrors that Oklahoma City example because there were Scott Brooks critics early in Oklahoma City and then he just survived and kept on and kept on and kept on and finally uh, he had to go, and it was like two years probably too late once they finally got rid of him. I kind of mm-hmm. feel like that could be what's sort of building here, what you're mentioning with Brett Brown. Because to me, I think he's done an incredible job. Just to survive that tank alone uh, is a sign of a great coach. He's got his team, uh, you know, they're, they've passed Indiana in the standings as we've talked right now. To me, that could make them the single biggest overachievers compared to, you know, preseason expectations in the entire league. If it's not them, it's the Pacers, right? So yeah. from that alone, Brett Brown should be in the coach of the year conversation facing no heat whatsoever. And so I think some of these conversations about him are a little premature, but I could also see him being the coach who sort of sticks around there. And then maybe some of those creativity questions that are kind of already popping up right now, coming back to bite him down the road. But I think he should be getting a full vote of confidence at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of my favorite parts of this Sixers season is that coming into it, I think a lot of people around the league expected him to be the fall guy when the Sixers fell short of the like 43 win expectations and playoff expectations because all that seemed so insane back in October. And uh, he was just, it was not setting up to be a happy ending for Brett Brown. And so watching him sort of like, not only salvage things, but just excel and scare the crap out of the East has been great. Um, And yet, (laughs) there are still going to be questions. Uh, For me, with the Sixers, I think they were underrated like a month ago, and now they are beating up on mostly bad teams. Like they beat, they looked awesome against Minnesota Saturday night, but at the same time, that's Minnesota without Jimmy Butler, and like, I'm not sure how like what kind of test that really is and uh before that they they beat orlando like they're beating a lot of tanking teams and so i think that there's a chance that the sixers are going to come into the playoffs looking amazing after having a pretty easy final month of the season and they'll be like the three seed and then there's going to be a reality check in the first round because i'm not sure they're actually this good um, but then again, like we've, we've doubted them. We've been expecting them to come back to earth for several months now. So maybe that, maybe yeah. they are just like the 2011 thunder. That's what I, yeah, that's the comparison. It makes a lot of sense because people doubted those teams too. And rightfully so. Cause when young teams take these huge leaps like that, uh, the natural tendency as observers is to say, prove it, prove it, prove it. I mean, they're, right. they're not 
probably going to get to 50 wins, but it's pretty close. I mean, that is really impressive. And when you look at their top-end talent, like what's going to work in the playoffs, you know, you like to compare everyone to those 2015 Hawks. I noticed you're not comparing Philly to those 2015 Hawks because they've got superstar guys who you trust to be the best player in a series. Yeah. 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 Like Embiid is going to be a handful no matter who they draw. It's mainly worrying about the way teams are going to guard Ben Simmons in the playoffs and and basically like scheme to make him prove that he can hit a jump shot, make them prove that they can run an offense with guys sagging like four or five feet off of Simmons. And uh, like the like the Wizards, for instance, have guarded Simmons pretty successfully with Kelly Oubre and Otto Porter, who are not exactly like world beaters. And so when it when teams kind of like lock in like that, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they respond because no, no question. Re- I mean, who who else got those knocks though, right? Russell Westbrook wasn't that young Russ the same thing? Like you know, how our yeah. team's going to defend him? You know, prove it, beat us with your jumper, see what you could do. And I think you know for Simmons, like he's not going to do that, right? So that could go one of two ways in the playoffs. You know, it, it could get into his head and he could you know overpass and you know the offense could totally bog down because he's you know, not comfortable shooting or, you know, he could also, you know, take a play out of Westbrook's book and just use that as an opportunity to attack a defense that's sagging as hard as possible, you know, get himself to the free throw line, you know, collapse a defense, get open shooters, and it could work out well. You just don't know, you can't predict until you see it where he's going to fall on that sort of, you know, development cycle because these are the same challenges that guys with similar, similar skill sets or physicality advantages have had to overcome as they've grown in previous years. Yeah, and I will say, and I said this after opening night, Sixers-Wizards, and I've said this a couple times throughout the year, Simmons is kind of fascinating to watch because he'll disappear for various stretches, but then he has these moments in each game where he just looks completely impossible to stop. And when he's going downhill... It's like him and LeBron and Giannis are in a category of their own. And so you're right. Like he, he does have that kind of like Westbrook ceiling to him. And uh, we'll see what we get, man. I'm, I'm beginning to get pretty excited for the playoffs. It's going to be awesome. Uh, a couple well, more questions other, here. Yeah, last points on the Sixers. Let's not discount if they get a top four seed, their home court advantage. That's going to be very real, especially <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When you're looking at fan bases, you know, like with really, you know, or franchises with really weak fan bases, I don't know, like Washington comes to mind. Maybe there's some other ones in that Eastern (laughs) Conference playoff bracket, but that's going to be a real factor, you know, and that could wind up, you know, nerves could get the better of you. You know, you get the crazy crowd gate one, you're not ready for the moment. Uh, It all washes over you. You crumble a little bit. I mean, that can happen to young teams, Uh, but that's going to be a legit advantage for them. And then the other thing too, is like, if they're a top four seed, I don't think the teams at the bottom half of that bracket are that good. And I don't think it would be like, we don't need to throw a parade at the Liberty Bell if they win a first round series. I mean, I, I understand the, the temptation to question them like you have been, uh, yeah. but you know they could just simply be the better all around team than a lot of the teams behind them in the playoff order if they match up you know, uh, with either Indiana, Washington, Miami, whoever it winds up being. They should beat those teams, right? I mean, I, I think so. I mean... I'm so resigned to a Sixers Wizards playoff series and and losing my mind in like this the last week in April uh, that there's no question in my mind how this is all going to shake out. But we'll see. If I mean if it's Sixers Pacers or Sixers Heat, like yeah, Philly's in great shape. Um, 
But for now, a uh, couple more questions. We went way too long on the Warriors, so we're not going to get to all these. But Callum says, as a New Zealander, I'm legally obligated to support Stephen Adams and everything he does. But we often talk about him here as the next big thing. It's awesome to have a Kiwi in the NBA. So what do you guys think is the ceiling for Steven Adams? Um, first of all, let me say that I saw a picture of Steven Adams and Lord the other day. And he, Steven Adams posted a picture of him with Lord as a rookie. And then now, and it was great to see the way Steven Adams' look has evolved over that period, um, five or six years. And I'm also really happy that fellow New Zealander Lord is repping for Steven Adams. And I'm glad that they've, they have a... a a union together. Um, but as far as Steven Adams, the basketball player, I, the only reason I included this is because he has been awesome for the last month or so. Like his numbers, he's, he's a solid 20 and 10 guy lately. And I think he's, I mean, he hasn't eclipsed Paul George, but he is clearly the third, the third star in OKC at this point. No question. Um, well, first of all, I thought it was Lordy. So I'm glad that you cleared that up. for me. <laughs> Perfect. Had no, had no idea she was from New Zealand. Glad you added that. Um, I like the way that Callum phrased his email, though, when he's saying basically like he's legally obligated to talk about Stephen Adams and because they always talk about him as the next big thing. I did an interview with either a radio station or a TV station in New Zealand one time, and literally the only two things I remember about the interview, one, there was a commercial right before I came on and it was for flavored nuts. And they were just going on and on about how tasty flavored nuts were, which uh-huh. like you, that was, was, you know, a little awkward. And second, <laughs> they asked me like seven follow-ups about Steven Adams. I don't even know if we talked about a single other player. So my image of New Zealand is like the beautiful panorama photos I see on Instagram people just going around talking to each other about how great flavored nuts are. And then just nonstop, you know, Steven Adams is the number one of our top 100 rank for uh, uh, worldwide athletes because we love him so much. That's my impression of uh, New Zealand. Not sure how accurate it is, but I'm going to go with it. He's one of the most underrated players in the NBA. We had that conversation a few weeks ago. He's right near the top of the list. The mellow thing has so, it's been so, so sad. I mean, did you see the game against the Blazers the other night where the only reason why they brought Carmelo Anthony there, or the main reason, was to be that shot maker guy, right? The Hoodie Mellow. And Hoodie Mellow had a couple opportunities late in that game to get a much-needed home win against Portland uh, for standings purposes, playoff positioning purposes, uh, pride purposes, and uh, Hoodie Mellow, the hood was off because he got tied up in the corner, basically, and then missed a, a wide-open potential game winner pretty badly. Um, so to and me, like Oklahoma missed free throws against the Celtics last week, too. Yeah, that was that was another tough one. Yeah, they're, they're coming so fast and furious, his disappointing nights, he can, barely can keep up. Uh, but that just underscores the point here is that as great as Steven Adams is, I think the way their roster is constructed, like even if he was playing at an all defensive level, uh, you know, first team type of guy, they're still so reliant upon that third scoring option in Carmelo that, you know, he's going to probably remain underrated here for a while just because of the way the, the roster is constructed. So I think it's in Steven Adams' own best interest, like Steven Adams, Inc. Like that stock is going to soar uh, <laughs> once Melo's no longer in the equation because he's not just a defensive guy. His offensive right. rebounding puts such pressure on opposing teams. It's so unique. He's so good around the basket. And he obviously has like telepathic relationship with Westbrook in terms of how those 
those guys operate together. So he brings a ton to the table. Uh, I'm not sure he's going to be an all-NBA center because of guys like Embiid and Towns are just going to be on that ballot year after year after year. I'm never sure he's going to crack an all-star team either. But he is absolutely one of those like diehard NBA fans. Like he's on my list of, you know, quote unquote favorite players. No question. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question because I think one of the reasons we constantly talk about how underappreciated he is is because he's so crucial to like holding things together at OKC, whether it's holding the defense together or like you said, the offensive rebounding. Like he does a lot of really important things for that team. And for that reason, he's got dorks like us singing his his praises along with the entire nation of New Zealand but I wonder whether he would be even more appreciated somewhere else where he was more of an offensive option and still did a bunch of the little things and wasn't like marginalized as the way he is a lot of times for long stretches in OKC yeah, I mean, I, I would expect Russell Westbrook lets Adams know of his appreciation for him behind the scenes, sort of like the running back who always, you know, shouts out his offensive line because, I mean, not to be mean, but Westbrook misses a lot of shots, right? I mean, he's yeah. there's a lot of missed shots that are going up there. There's a lot of available offensive rebounds. If Adams wasn't there to get them and turn them into second chance points to extend possessions, to give you know Russell Westbrook the chance to reload, the criticism of Westbrook which is already pretty loud, would be even louder because their offense wouldn't be efficient enough to get by, right? So if you just took Adams off that team and replaced him with like a league replacement center or even a stretch five where maybe he's a little bit more modern, but he's not as physical, uh, it would drastically, in my opinion, affect perception of Russell Westbrook in terms of how valuable he is for a team because they wouldn't be winning nearly as many games. Their offense wouldn't be good enough uh, to get by uh, the way they play. So from that standpoint, I would hope that Westbrook views Adams as like, uh, you know, his best buddy. And, you know, if you're Adams, <laughs> if, if you're a big lug, you know, Westbrook's keeping you employed. Like you need a, <laughs> a guy missing yeah. a lot of shots to do what you do best. So it, it's kind of a perfect marriage. And again, he's clearly the best NBA player to be stranded on an island with. So uh, another reason to love Steven Adams. Um, all right, let's wrap things up with a couple questions. Barack said, can you guys talk about Sharp's college basketball piece on this week's podcast? I'm interested in Ben's reaction to it. Did you read it? Let's start there. I did read it. It was so level-headed and, and well-organized. I mean, it, it read like a legal <laughs> briefing. I was very proud of you. Uh, that was a really nice piece. People should go check it out. It's orderly. You had numbered questions, like six or seven right. questions, whatever it was. So very easy to follow. Uh, nice long read. You know, you can you know chew up some time on the toilet if you need to. Uh, my reaction <laughs> was that you raised a lot of the points uh, that we had talked about maybe previously in terms of the drawbacks of just trying to expect the G League to be this amazing incubator for talent. Like there's a lot of hiccups or bumps in the road to get there. I came away from it actually kind of thinking we should just go the academy route. I mean, how do you feel about this? Like what if USA basketball, which already has youth teams, which already has like under 16, under 17, under 18 teams, which already hand selects guys for various events, uh, which already kind of feeds directly into that Nike Hoop Summit pipeline and mm-hmm. some of these other, you know, showcase events. Why don't we just put that, you know, in uh, a place where basketball talent wants to be? I don't know. Is it Las Vegas? I mean, is it LA? I mean, wherever you would want to put this academy, uh, get these kids 
high level high school tutors and instructors so that it's not just a basketball experience. It's a life experience. Invite yeah. a certain number of guys every single year, have it be fully funded, uh, and let the guys go there. And maybe they're just competing against each other in these elite scrimmages. Uh, you know, maybe they're competing against other local high school teams. I don't know totally how that would work, but what if we nationalized the process of developing our elite <laughs> talent so that we didn't have to worry about the NCAA. We didn't have to risk these guys going to the G League. What if there was a completely outside option where USA Basketball and the NBA could be involved in some of these super talented 15, 16, and 17-year-old guys? What about that? So you're saying this is the NBA running it, not individual teams starting up their own academies? Not individual teams. It could either be the NBA or you could pretend that it was USA Basketball. We're just saying this is the godfathers of the sport, right? Like, obviously, like the Jerry Colangelo's and Adam Silver's of the world would be the puppet masters and and the financiers of this idea. Uh, But it would be similar to like, oh, Nike would be involved. Of course, all the corporate partners would be involved. I'm sure these guys would be playing on television scrimmages and so forth. ESPN could get in on that, maybe put it on like ESPNU or something like that. I guess what I'm saying is, even the high school, these like Zion Williamson, like having him dunk all over these poor kids in South Carolina who have no chance of stopping him also seems like a waste of time to me, right? And if we've seen academies produce elite players, whether it's golf, tennis, and some of these other sports here in America, and we've seen academies work successfully overseas in other countries, shouldn't we have the coolest, most impressive, most well-fightingest academy here in the United States because we have all the basketball talent? Doesn't that just make sense? Yeah, and it's not a bad idea the way you explain it. I mean, the idea of 20 or 30 NBA NBA teams having their own academies is a little trickier in large part because there's just not that much elite talent. And so you're dealing with, like, let's say each each academy would have 10 spots and, like, uh, those go, go to 10 high schoolers, like, most of those kids won't make the NBA and then you're pulling them out of school at 15 and 16 years old. And like, I'm not sure what their options are like down the line. And so the, when the, when the Academy idea was floated over the summer, last summer, like I, I talked to some people who were like, you know, when you really look at the way this works on the ground in Europe, there are a lot of like cautionary tales and, and kind of, sad stories of guys who like go all in and are told that they're the next big thing at 13 years old and then just kind of like wash out by the time they're 18 and don't have many options and so that's why I would be reluctant to professionalize things at in the at the like high school level um but your idea when you're talking about taking 10 or 15 guys or 15 or 20 guys and putting them into an academy seems a lot more plausible. And I never really thought about it that way, but nationalizing like elite development isn't the worst idea in the world. I'm still not sure like how much you pay those guys and and how it works from there. But like, like I said, in the piece, we're in the brainstorming process. There are no bad ideas. What I was writing about though for people who didn't read it is I was d- discussing the G league and like Adam silver came out or it wasn't Adam silver. Brian Windhorst came out reporting on what the NBA wants to do and, uh, and talking about how like they want to like develop a more robust G league model where players will be able to go 
and have like a real minor league experience and a real alternative to the NCAA. And again, like all the details are, are pretty sketchy right now because they haven't, there hasn't been an official proposal, but in talking to a couple people who, who would know like scouts and such, the, the idea of, of college kids, even elite draft prospects, like going to the G League and succeeding is pretty far fetched um, because the the level of talent with like grown men who play G League basketball is is much higher than people realize and uh, like guys like Trey Young and Marvin Bagley would get pushed around and uh, it just wouldn't benefit nearly as many people as as you might think and so for me. I like your idea. The, the USA basketball Colangelo backed like power move is is kind of interesting um, in terms of a, a national academy for a select group. So here's here's what I'm thinking. Look, I mean, you could have potentially 20 spots per class. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, not all those guys are going to be ready to go to the NBA, right? But I think one stipulation of this academy was you'd have to graduate. Uh, and you'd have to be, you know, basically college eligible. So if it didn't work out, if, you know, you were the 19th guy in your class and there was just no way you were going to get drafted, you go to college. Yeah. But I think one other benefit of if you graduated from this academy on track with your senior year of, of uh, high school, you could be draft eligible right then and there, right? And then you, the drafting teams would have years worth of information from your academy development to kind of make their decision off of. They would know who you are as a person. And you as the player not getting paid uh, to go to the the high school, uh, you know, because I think that could get pretty expensive if you wanted to have it be this big, you know, an 80-person right. type high school. But you would be eligible to get millions of dollars, uh, you know, endorsement deals and, and uh, NBA salary uh, without having to go to college. And I think that would be the benefit is you'd be cutting the college out of the elite one-and-done guys who actually could play up uh, at an early age. Because I agreed with what the scouts told you in that. There's not that many players... Uh, who are capable of playing professionally at a young age. And also, as you pointed out in your own writing, there's not that many rookies who are having huge impact early, even in a great rookie class. Uh, and this was a point that you made, I'm echoing it. Uh, you know, how many guys are actually helping teams who are winning or are going to have you know any chance of impact in the postseason? It's a very, very small number. And you see guys who redshirt, like the Ben Simmons of the world, have so much more success because they're just an- another year more physically mature. So yeah. Uh, I like the idea of just cutting college out of the pipeline for elite guys. Let college sort out its own drama. If you're the NBA, uh, you can tell who you know the elite guys are. Like Bagley, everybody knew Bagley three years ago, right? Yeah, like he totally. never should have been at Duke. Uh, he should have been able to get a Nike deal maybe while he was a senior in high school, and then just go straight into the NBA. That would have been a better path for him. And um, I would be going that route if I was, uh, you know in charge of the world and had unlimited resources like these guys do. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's also, I mean, worth pointing out that a lot of those like basketball factories already exist. And so if the NBA became the new, uh, what's the name? I think Finlay prep in, in Las Vegas is, is sort of like an elite basketball school where I'm sure they've got like 30 kids enrolled and that's, that's the entire school. Uh, but they all go live in a house. Like, there's no reason USA Basketball can't be doing that. Um, or actually, there are probably a, a handful of reasons, but it's it's worth investigating. I would just say this. I still am not giving up on college basketball, and I think Adam Silver's approach to this is more opportunistic, and, uh, more opportunistic than altruistic, and 
I think like he he sees the potential for a secondary league, a G League that's like pretty popular, houses some of the best draft draft picks, and like it basically like infuses that league with more talent than than it's ever had. I just think that like college basketball is free, and uh, it's I'm. I don't understand why the NBA isn't trying to push for reform there because if college basketball becomes more lucrative for players who are who are in college, it then frees up the league to get more creative with draft eligibility rules. And like five or ten years from now, if if kids can go to college and make real money, then suddenly it's a lot less morally problematic to force them to to stay in school for an extra year or two. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason why, you know, someone in Adam Silver's position wouldn't be able to push hard against the NCAA to do the types of things you want them to do in that situation is because it's sort of like looking in the mirror. Adam Silver understands how stubborn the NCAA is going to be because he needs look no further than his treatment of tanking. I mean, this guy's pretending tanking doesn't exist and it's not a problem. (laughs) And he's been doing it for years and years. The NCAA has the exact same mentality when it comes to paying players, right? Like, oh yeah, what more do you need than a scholarship? Like how many times have we heard that the NCAA doesn't, you know, we can't pay these guys. It's just not possible. It's impossible. We'll never be able to pay athletes. That's been their mantra for years and years and years. And when you're dealing with someone who is not acting in good faith. And to me, I don't think the NCAA is acting in good faith towards these elite basketball players or guys who are capable of uh, you know, generating a lot of money. And I don't think Adam Silver is speaking in good faith when he addresses the tanking issue. Uh, at some point, it becomes easier to pick that battle as not one you want to fight, right? Because it's going to be a bare knuckle brawl. You're going to be taking the money out of the NCAA administrator's hands over their dead body. You know, those... those uh, that, those dollar bills are clutched well, in white, bluing knuckles in the grave part before of the, you're part getting of that money away is, from though, them. The money is clearly already there. I mean, uh, most of the elite draft picks now are are getting paid while they're in college by shoe companies, by bag men, like whoever. It's not necessarily the schools themselves that are paying. So the thing that I've always said is really messed up in college is that they're not even letting them take endorsement money that's already being offered and so that's i'm not i'm not saying silver should push the ncaa to pay players through the schools but like there are just some very simple rules that if they were changed could make college make a lot more sense for some of these 18 year olds well look andrew i'm going to actually give you a piece of advice from pre barara he's an awesome podcaster former u.s attorney he tweeted over the weekend the importance of understanding your uh, you know, your debate arguments, points, and where they're coming from and their point of view, essentially know thy enemy. Because what's simple to you in terms of rule changes is completely sacrilegious to the NCAA guys. And let me tell you why I know this. For some reason, years ago, I was invited to host a panel uh, by the University of Oregon Law School, I believe, and there was a whole bunch of NCAA lawyers on the panel. Uh-huh. I have no idea why they chose me, but I was probably the only one who would do it for free, right? So I show up. And I had not prepared for it really at all. And I'm coming at it from the NBA perspective of sort of like, you know, we're going to talk about one and done and we're going to talk about why they can't go straight from the pros and you know why aren't we paying these athletes. And it became crystal clear to me within basically two minutes of hosting this panel, which included sort of NCAA attorneys and people who just sort of, 
you know, firmly believe the NCA position that, you know, players should not be paid, that they were right. unreasonable. There was no counter argument that was going to get through to them. They were dug in the ground. They weren't going to move. And the only way that there was ever going to be changes is if they didn't have their jobs anymore, right? And because yeah. there's not really any oversight of the leadership of the NCA, you know, they're self-governing essentially. And, you know, the, the legal challenges have to come through the court systems. That's going to take forever. They're going to drag that out for decades, right? Why should anyone in your position or Adam Silver's position believe there's going to be a pragmatic compromise involved? I just don't see it. You know, I don't think that if you look at the track record of their behavior for not only the last five years, but the last 70 years, uh, nothing about that says, oh, yeah, like we're just going to go to like, uh, you know, a a meeting room in in New York City and just kind of (laughs) hash out how we're going to let agents come into the NCAA game. They're never going to do it. I mean, compliance is big business. Lots and lots of people have jobs and have their personal livelihoods uh, so they, they can be meter maids for the NCAA, right? All those people, their lives are thrown upside down if you change the kinds of laws um, that you want to change. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Okay. That's why there's such pushback here. This is systematic bureaucracy at work here. It's not that simple. That's fair. I have three responses. Number one, I think it's worth pursuing because it's better for actual basketball players and it requires no investment on the NBA's part to send the best players to college first. I think there are all kinds of benefits on and off the court. And, uh, and I think that like everyone should be honest that that's probably the ideal scenario if college basketball makes sense and isn't screwing kids, which right now it's, it sort of is there. It's forcing them on to like a gray slash black market of, of bag men. And that's not ideal for anyone. Um, number two, I would say that the NBA has fought hard on a number of causes that go far beyond basketball. And and I think Adam Silver, like a hallmark of his tenure in charge has been that like they they recognize that the that basketball players and the league itself has a voice in in the public arena. And this is like a public issue where it like it that affects almost every player who enters the league and so it's it's seems like it's kind of a cop-out to say oh no we can't change this like that's i'm sorry but we're just gonna go fight for gun control uh which is like the nba should be fighting for all those things but i think this is a cause that hits a little closer to home the last thing i would say the ncaa is getting investigated by the fbi like they are so far past the point where they where anyone could pretend that this is working that like I think their days are numbered regardless. It's just a question of whether the the NBA is going to use its leverage to accelerate the reform process. I'm sure either way, it's this is not gonna look the same in ten years ten or fifteen years. But um Well we'll see. I'd like to share your hopefulness. I do think the NBA should be taking an active approach on behalf of the potential players. They have a vested interest. Adam Silver said that. I guess my point is, of all the available options, you know, basically fighting the NCAA publicly or pushing back hard or expecting them to compromise seems to me like the least pragmatic option. I actually think it would be easier to create your own basketball academy and just siphon the talent off and say, hey, good luck, NCAA. You can pick the, you know, the guys who are going to be four-year players. Like, you can have, uh, yeah. you know, and I like the that Grayson idea. Allens of the world. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying, like, which one of those is easier? Which one of those is going to end up with a better result? Uh, To me, uh, I just don't see any way where you entering this charged mix with the uh, the NCAA is going to be 
uh, productive and quick. It's going to be long, ugly. And, you know, Adam Silver has done a lot of things. You're right in terms of, you know, social stances and all of that. But when is he pushing back against a bureaucracy and reforming a bureaucracy as big as the NCAA? I haven't seen yeah. that. I mean, that's part no of, disrespect to him. Like, it's easier to cut Donald Sterling out of the NBA than it is to overhaul college basketball. That's my point. That's fair. I, I, I think I really like Adam Silver, and I want him to live up to the hype. And sometimes I think the hype is a little bit overdone as far as like how revolutionary he actually is. But this is an opportunity for the NBA to really like lead. And it would be very, very cool if they could pull it off. But you're right. It's not easy. And I don't mean to imply that it would be easy. And the, the academy idea would be awesome. So uh, and it, honestly, the G League could work too. It, that's more of a long shot in my view. But before we go... Last question from Kevin, our favorite Orlando Magic fan. He says, not sure if you guys have been tuning into any Magic games lately. Completely justified if you're not. But Jonathan Isaac has looked really damn good on defense. His lateral mobility is ridiculous for a 6'11 player approaching 7 feet. And he has the long-term ability to effectively guard all five positions on the court. This rookie class seems like it has the chance to be an all-timer. Any thoughts on Isaac? And... All I can say is that Jonathan Isaac's progress has not gone unnoticed. I'm still a believer, and I am pulling for him to, I don't know. He's been awesome. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, my takes are, it feels like the Orlando Magic play every single night. I swear they played 140 <laughs> games this year. I don't know what that says about them, but uh, it really does seem like their season has just been a complete marathon. Second, I was watching a Magic game not that long ago, and Isaac was playing great. And then I looked up on Twitter, and I was like, huh, I haven't heard a lot of buzz about Jonathan Isaac. And I looked at the the main Magic beat writer, and he had tweeted, wow, this is like Jonathan Isaac's best game of the season already. We're only halfway through the first quarter. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, maybe maybe I didn't miss as much as I was worried that I had missed. But he, he has looked good. I mean, he pops as an athlete. There's no question. Defensively, he's been all over the place. Definitely signs of progress and kind of comfort from him. Um, I'm not sure he is going to be the tipping point between this rookie class being great and being one of the all-time greats, like maybe Kevin (laughs) uh, suggested in his email. But Kevin's endless Orlando magic optimism is something that we should all strive for in life, Andrew. Uh, If you have similarly optimistic questions, please email them into openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And don't forget, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Go find our page search open floor scroll down it says rate and review tab five stars it's just that simple andrew until later this week i'll talk to you all right man take it easy another great edition of open floor is in the books did you know locked on has a daily podcast for all 30 nba teams if you're a lakers fan search locked on lakers a celtics fan search locked on celtics warriors fans search locked on warriors Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.